Welcome to Base Liberty, your source for politics. The government is way too big, way too intrusive, we are overtaxed. History. The right to self-defense is a natural, God-given right. The founders clearly understood this. Economics. We can't just keep printing off money, we can't just keep borrowing money. If you think this path is sustainable, then I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And more. From a liberty perspective. I've got to disagree with you there. The income tax is clearly immoral because it assumes you don't own the fruit of your labor, the government. With your host, Darren Wisely. Deregulation and decentralization are the answers if we're ever going to get this thing back on track. We need to look to families, churches, and charities, not the What's state. What's going on? Welcome to Base Liberty episode 15. And we're going to have to trudge through this one because... I may feel physically ill. I read a headline that said John Marshall is the best justice in U.S. history, and it's going to be hard to keep that stomach down. But uh, Darren Wisely here. It's Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. Thanks for tuning in, and we're coming off a really special episode with our guest, West Virginia House of Delegates, Pat McGeehan. If you didn't watch that, make sure to check it out. Also had another article published uh, that went off the themes of one of our recent episodes. Uh, Check out choosewisely.org if you want to see that. It's about the 17th Amendment and my response to what I think is a silly article in National Review. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at the age of 87. Uh, Ding dong. And it's a huge controversy because there's all this debate whether uh, President Trump can nominate someone to replace her of course the democrats don't want him to and they're looking to when barack obama was in his last year in office he wanted merrick garland to be on the supreme court he wanted to nominate him that didn't go through so it's going to be a controversy it's probably all we're going to hear about in the news this week and it's going to be a major theme going into this 2016 election cycle Amy Comey Barrett was on President Trump's shortlist last time around, and he's talked about nominating her. Probably a smart choice to pick a woman so that this way uh, sexual assault allegations can't suddenly come out of thin air. Well, I I guess they could against a woman. Uh, There really is no low. Uh, They won't stoop to these days, but uh, it would be a little bit harder to be as convincing. We'll say it that way. So with all that being said, as the backdrop of what's going on in our current political events, When you take a step back, you have to ask yourself, why does this matter so much? Well, it's because we're ruled by oligarchs on the Supreme Court. Uh, All it takes is five people to decide something. They can strike down any state law, any law passed by the federal Congress, anything the president does. They are, in today's United States, the final say. And, And they really are the superior branch both over the state's and the other branches of federal government. Now, having five oligarchs rule us is completely contrary to the Republican form of government the framers had set up for us. It's really unfortunate it's come to this. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about Marshall Law, or John Marshall, one of the biggest villains in United States history, right there with Hamilton. Um, He was totally a Hamiltonian, and those two had the biggest impact Well, other than George Washington, of course, without George Washington as the general of the uh, the army, we we don't win, and and the United States doesn't separate from Britain. But so I would say that Washington technically had the biggest influence of any individual. But 
after the Republic is formed. And Washington had a big role, of course, in the early Republic. But the two that had the biggest lasting impact that we still feel today would be Alexander Hamilton and John Marshall. You hear a lot of conservatives, you don't really hear many progressives call themselves originalists these days, but conservatives will say, oh, I believe in originalism, originalism. I'm an originalist. Well, if they believe a lot of these things that John Marshall and Supreme Court justices since these precedents they have put in place or they support this, they aren't truly originalists. Because if you're an originalist, you support the original intent of the Constitution, not quote-unquote constitutional law, which 90-plus percent of the time has nothing to do with the Constitution. And constitutional law is taught from elementary school, high schools, colleges, and even in law school as if they were amendments to the Constitution. But that is not true at all. Constitutional law is just five people's opinion on the Constitution, and sometimes it is completely contrary to the original intent of the Constitution. So that is something to keep in mind. I don't care where this lawyer has their degree from. Many times they're completely wrong. Now, they may know what the state of the law is currently, but when it comes to knowing the Constitution, I hear time and time again, well, this lawyer said this about the... Okay, maybe that's the state of the law. That's not the Constitution. It really grinds my gears, and it really grinds my gears when so-called originalists are not in line at all <laughs> with the original Constitution. So let's explain. Let's get into that. We got to set the table and... We have these two competing factions uh, before the Constitution is ratified and in the early Republic. You have the Federalists, who are the Nationalists, the big government, the Centralizers, the Hamiltonians, and the Jeffersonians, the Republicans, what your school books would call the Democratic Republicans. Of course, they didn't call themselves that. Yeah, let's call ourselves the Democratic-Republicans, but they didn't really have a, a real name, so I call them the Republicans. You can call them the Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans, what have you. Not to be confused with the GOP Republicans started in 1854, the party of Lincoln that still exists today, or the Democrats, uh, which were the party of Jackson, also still exists today, albeit in a very different form. I'm not going to get into the whole factional differences. I covered a lot of that in episode four. Um, when I talked about nullification, the spirit of 98, but some of these topics are going to come into play, so I might just touch on a little as a refresher. So setting the table here, John Adams is president. It went into detail on, in episode four. If you haven't checked it, watch it out, and it'll make some of this make a lot more sense. But people were sick and tired of the Federalists, of them completely destroying uh, the liberties that they had fought so hard for not long earlier uh, in the American War for Independence. Because of this, there was what they call the Revolution of 1800, this wave of support for the Republicans, who were the true Federalists. So they take over the Congress. Uh, Jefferson becomes president in 1800. John Adams is the lame duck president. He was so unpopular, he actually came in third place. Imagine today an incumbent coming in third place. That'd be funny. The Federalists, as they're all coming out of power, Jefferson's administration's about to come in in their last year, they passed the Judiciary Act. And what this was was a way for the Federalists to stack their court system so that they could get all their people in power 
because they're voted out in the elected positions. So they're stacking the lower courts with Federalists, and then there's an opening in the Supreme Court, and John Adams nominates John Marshall as the next Chief Justice, and this would be a very uh, fateful event in American history and really would change the course of things. This kind of shows, too, to the Trump thing that there is kind of a precedent because John Adams in his last year, did nominate a Supreme Court justice. So there's some food for thought uh, relaying it to our current political situation. It's really too bad because if Thomas Jefferson would have been in, he would have nominated Spencer Roan, and we would have probably had a completely different course of American history if Spencer Roan is Chief Justice rather than John Marshall. So why the Federalists and the Adams administration are packing the courts during this uh, lame duck here. There's a position called Justice of the Peace. It's really a lowly uh, judicial position, but it is appointed. And the Secretary of State at that time is supposed to deliver the stack of appointments to the different uh, positions that are appointed. And the Secretary of State says, you know what? I don't feel like doing this. I I'm going to let the next guy who will be James Madison uh, come in here and, and deliver these for me. One of these individuals who is nominated for Justice of the Peace is William Marbury, and he never gets his nomination because of this lazy slob Secretary of State. Well, who is this lazy slob Secretary of State? None other than John Marshall. And actually, the one who I heard call him a lazy slob was Brian McClanahan. Check out his books. He's got Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. He's got a book on Hamilton. You can learn so much from him, and I'll link to some of that stuff, so if you're interested, you can learn more, because I really want to pump up people who have really good work and who I've learned a lot from. Brian says that uh, John Marshall was always late and disheveled, just a total slob. So this slob doesn't give, doesn't do his job, he doesn't pass out uh, these appointments. And so then the Jefferson administration comes in, and... Uh, Madison doesn't give out these appointments and they're like, well, we're not, screw that. Like, we're going to nominate our guys. If you're too lazy to put them in, we'll put in our Republicans. We don't want these Federalists in here anyways, you know. We won this election and we're going to set the, uh, the United States in the right direction. So the Federalists uh, convince Marbury, this guy nominated for Justice of the Peace, to go to court to determine that he is the rightful person to hold that position, even though he never um, got his appointment. He didn't really want to do it. They convinced him to. So it goes to the Supreme Court because Madison, uh, the new Secretary of State, doesn't want to give him that. So in 1803, during the Jefferson administration, because he won that election, took over in 1801, this case goes to the Supreme Court. Well, who's on the Supreme Court now? John Marshall. He's the Chief Justice, as I said, who was appointed by John Adams. Well, you know, if John Marshall had any integrity at all, he would have recused himself from the case because they were in court because he was the lazy Secretary of State that didn't do his job. But uh, no, John Marshall's not going to do that. This case, Marbury v. Madsen... The case that would change the entire landscape of American history says that the courts can expand and interpret law, and, and it defined judicial review 
in the United States. And the concept of judicial review itself wasn't new, but what John Marshall did was took it to a whole new level. And, and in essence, this gave the Supreme Court power to determine what the other two branches of government did. So he unilaterally made one branch of the federal government more powerful than the other two, a complete power grab. And this is how you have a Supreme Court today that can say what the president can and can't do, what the Congress can and can't do, totally against the system of checks and balances. Any of the founding generation, this issue of judicial review was debated. Many were surprised by the outcome of this case. James Madison recognized that judicial review would occur, but he understood judicial review only to be that the Supreme Court could review lower lower federal court cases. So if a, you know, like now we have a district court, circuit court, those cases could be reviewed by a Supreme Court, but not overruling the other branches. Thomas Jefferson, of course, took it a step further. He said in 1804 that the nowhere in the Constitution was the Supreme Court given this authority of judicial review. And, and of course, it's true. There's nowhere it says, oh, the Supreme Court gets to determine uh, what the other two branches can do or not. I mean, it's absurd. Jefferson was just very frustrated by this. In 1823, he was still talking about it. He says, Marbury v. Madison is continuously cited by bench and bar as if it is settled law. This is where the Supreme Court will get their power. The ink was hardly dry on the Constitution when the judicial branch totally um, unilaterally declared itself the most powerful branch. And we can thank none other than John Marshall for that. But this was just the beginning. So this case made the Supreme Court, in essence, the superior branch of the federal government. But they weren't done there. They would go on, the Marshall Court would go on to make the Supreme Court able to override state laws, which was completely contrary to what the understanding was in this federal republic. Uh, when the Constitution was ratified. So in 1810, you have Fletcher v. Peck, and just quick background, uh, you have this Yazoo land in Georgia that had belonged to Indian tribes, and the land had been sold for around a cent per acre, which is extremely cheap even for those times. Well, come to find out, uh, the land was being sold in exchange for political bribes. And, of course, who was doing it? Well, it was the Federalists who were in office. So all these Federalists get voted out in the Georgia legislature once the public finds out that they were involved in this corruption. Because of this, people who had been screwed over wanted their money back. Well, the Supreme Court said, actually, we're going to overrule uh, Georgia law, and we're going to say, nope, you can't interfere in contracts interpreting the contract clause. So this was the first time the Supreme Court intervened in a state in state law and this totally goes against the sovereignty of the states and i've talked about this in other episodes especially check out that nullification one episode four um, because the understanding at the founding was that each state they use the name state for a reason not provinces not you know corporations what have you they're states they're sovereign states in a in a federal system but the supreme court says actually you know what we're 
going to be more powerful than you. We're going to determine what you do, and we're going to relegate you to just mere subsidiaries. So from here, this just gets set in stone that uh, the Supreme Court not only gets to override things on the federal level, but also in all of the states, which were supposed to be sovereign, and 1819 McCulloch v. Maryland is another one of the most influential cases in the United States history. It overrode state action. The Supreme Court overrode state action uh, involving taxation. Other thing John Marshall would do, not only would he make the Supreme Court the most powerful uh, branch of the federal government, not only would he make the Supreme Court more able to override state law, uh, he would also expound the necessary and proper clause to allow basically anything and everything. And I talk about how they did this in the Hamilton video. That was his vision of this as well. Uh, because he said, well, yeah, the necessary and proper clause doesn't really allow a national bank, but we're going to do it anyways. So that's how the national necessary and proper clause got to be able to do anything and everything. McCulloch v. Maryland. You think that's as bad as it gets? Nope, there's more. In 1824, they then used the Commerce Clause to do anything and everything. And this was in Gibbons v. Ogden, setting the stage uh, for basically anything to be taxed and regulated using the Commerce Clause. And that's how you get cases that I've talked about, like Wickard v. Filburn, Gonzalez v. Reich, and now... Uh, the government, the federal government regulates everything that goes on. Now, there was one okay case, 1833, Barron v. Baltimore, but that's a topic for a different episode. The key takeaway here is if you like that the Supreme Court can make decisions like Roe v. Wade, where it says, you know what, we get to determine what all the states can do, all 50 states. Thank John Marshall. If you like that, the Supreme Court can force Obamacare down our throat. You think John Roberts was bad? Where did, where did this come from? John Marshall. John Marshall had his little buddy on his court, his protege, Joseph Story. Oh, he had a story for you. We'll talk about Joseph Story in another day. If you like that anything you do can be taxed, can be regulated, can be criminalized. John Marshall. John Marshall set the stage for the federal government to do anything and everything to override state law and to create an oligarchy of five that can overrule anything else the federal and state governments do. Completely contrary to a federalist system, completely contrary to a Republican form of government. That's why John Marshall is at least in the top five, probably the top three, Probably the second biggest villain in United States history, but he's not talked about enough. He's praised. Wrongly so. There is a law school named after him. I think it's known as the worst law school in the nation. Fitting. But if someone says they're originalist, now you say, really, you're an originalist? Do you think the Supreme Court should have final say on everything and everything? They say yes. If they cite case law, you're not an originalist. Originalist is about the original Constitution. Not martial law. Hey, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out what we're doing on choosewisely.org. If you like what we're doing, like, share, and subscribe. It'll really help us keep the lights on and bring you more content.
Take care. Have a great week.